Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, during this new episode of Founder Series, we sat down with Alison Wolf. CEO at Vibrant Planet. Vibrant Planet is a tech platform that is accelerating fire-prone forest resiliency worldwide. They have created an online platform for landscape restoration that helps land manager plan in more fire-prone ecosystems. Alison grew up in Colorado with issues in forest fires and pine beetles in her backyard. After a successful career in tech in Silicon Valley, she started gravitating more toward climate issues. And it wasn't until after the Paradise Fire that she really dove into how to regenerate the forest in the West that had been mismanaged for so many years. California, indeed, is losing 6% of its forest per year, and Alison traced this down partially to a data and communication problem. So she set out to create a platform that facilitated the monitoring and reporting of this rapidly changing ecosystem. In this episode, Alison starts off by explaining what nature-based solutions are and how she has created a tech product to enable them. She goes on to explain the natural challenges nature-based solutions face, along with those faced by analytic as a service products. In doing so, she sets out how she created her product while ensuring a beautiful UX and the economics of nature-based solutions. During the second part of the discussion, Alison gives our tips on how to fundraise for nature-based solutions, service and product while maintaining a good work-life balance. She also gives a book recommendation based on project she has worked on. Alison, welcome to the show. Hi, Alison. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. 
I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting adventure and journey to unlock nature-based climate solutions by accelerating wildland resiliency with Vibrant Planet. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Guillaume. Excited to be here. So before we start, uh, can you give us a 30 second uh, introduction about Vibrant Planet? Yeah, Vibrant Planet is a tech platform that is accelerating forest resilience right now fo focused on fire prone forests worldwide. There's about a little more than half of land worldwide is it needs fire in some way to cycle nutrients, cycle carbon um, and to regenerate. And so we're focused on that that type of ecosystem at the moment. So let's start from the from the top. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your uh, personal story, background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides uh, building a vibrant planet? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or, or like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is a listener? So I grew up in Colorado in the Rocky Mountains. I now live in the Lake Tahoe area. And uh, I am very, very passionate about nature and watching it change rapidly uh, in front of our eyes with, with wildfire, um, mild stomping grounds as a, as a kid uh, in, in the Rockies up above the Boulder and Denver area um, was swept with beetle, bark beetle kill, just dead trees, little matchsticks as far as you could see um, from, a, from an airplane. Um, watching that happen now where I live in the Lake Tahoe area. So um, really passionate about, about nature. I spend a lot of time in it, hiking and mountain biking and backcountry skiing and snowshoeing, you name it, I do it outside um, daily. And um, uh, yeah, just very, very passionate about that. I'm also a mother of a 14 year old girl who is um, incredibly wise and um, passionate about her own her own uh, topics, and um, so you know, just very passionate about raising my daughter to be a, a good citizen in this in this crazy world. So, thanks for sharing uh, all of those more like uh, you know personal uh, story and passion on your side. Uh, we're looking at a little bit uh, preparing the interview, uh, looking about like your work life experience. Uh, very impressive, uh, a lot of like big names as well. Uh, Netflix, early days, uh, around the year 2000. And you mentioned there was still the year where DVDs were like sent over uh, to the to the client. You worked there, then uh, you also worked uh, with or for uh, Google, Facebook. Uh, so a lot of like uh, those uh, big names in the, in the tech industry. But during that uh, old journey and work-life experience, I mean, what are the, maybe like the one or two uh, pieces of like, uh, you know, experience in a way that give you an edge to, uh, to start a, the, the company? Yeah, good question. Um, so a lot of my career was, was working with some of those big brands you just named um, on sustainability. So, so really thinking about especially the biggest footprint for tech companies is, is data centers. And so working with Google and Facebook, especially really, really helping to think about um, data center efficiency, how those data centers are powered, um, trying to move 
um, basically accelerate the greening of the American grid um, through all kinds of coalition building. So with data center efficiency, um, we, at both companies, we, we started a, a, a effort called the OCP, Open Compute Project, that was, really became a space race between tech companies to, to create the most efficient data center. And part of the deal was you had to open source whatever you, whatever you cracked. Um, and so there were eventually 300 companies um, working at, at working on data center efficiency and sharing what they were what they were doing so that others could replicate. Um, so that had a huge impact um, on the on the energy use of, of all the all of the applications that we use. <laughs> and then and then started really thinking about um, you know how what are the strategies for for making renewable energy less expensive than fossil fuels and so. Um, started to started to help build alliances that would go into especially coal-based states and say we will bring these many jobs this much philanthropy um, this much of a tax base but you gotta let us green the grid um, and so that that really did play a role I think in in some of the tipping point on um, on the cost of renewable energy falling below fossil fuels and, and therefore a tipping point um, so in doing in doing some of that work and then also work around movement building during cop 21 the paris climate talks um, really experimenting with what moves people on climate change from denialism to wanting to take action how do you message about climate change so people understand the issue how big it is and what they can do so lots of experiment lots, lots of experimentation there um launching data for good programs those kinds of things at those companies um, the big learning there is is that platform plays have this enormous ripple effect in terms of impact, and so I really started to see my role on you know how do we tilt these platforms towards good. Obviously, had some some big wins and then some really big frustrations, <laughs> as you can imagine, with with the way some of those companies have behaved in the world. Um, but you know, really saw the power of that, and so when when I started to see the need for restoration in forests and the need to accelerate restoration in order to unlock nature-based solutions, um, I, I immediately went to, this has to be a platform play um, where you're building and leveraging data that exists to um, support uh, the problem at hand and, and also just make sure that people understand um, what's at stake what can be done? Um, so a lot of that is data visualization, education, um, and uh, you know, just really good product design as well, and and, and broad, broad engagement. So, um, so anyway, very much leveraged the experience I had before to to build what we've what we've built today. So I always ask to uh, to the, the different guests that we have on the show, like, uh, and you mentioned uh, clearly your your, your path uh, within the, the tech world was really working in this, uh, uh, you know, sustainability uh, department or like, uh, and then being advocate uh, for for the different like or at least the COP twenty one as you as you mentioned and different uh, different things. But do you have like an Probably also uh, again, maybe you, you give pa part of the the answer here, uh, mentioning like this uh, humongous like uh, you know wildfire that happened in California, uh, and especially close by to to you in uh, in Lake Tahoe, uh, seeing this uh, uh, you know all the forests dis destroyed. 
is all of those little uh, elements or big elements have been like for you like this uh, key uh, moment to in a way push you and motivate you even more to uh, to to start into the, the climate tech uh, ecosystem or do you have more like a specific aha moment that you can uh, define well so as i was um doing the work in the tech sector around energy efficiency and renewable energy that I mentioned, I was also um, supporting the launch of Drawdown with Paul Hawken um, and doing a little bit of work on regenerative ag um, and beginning to get more and more passionate about, okay, we're, we're reaching the point, um, the tipping point on renewable energy finally. And um, uh, how are we now going to pull all the carbon down that's sitting up there, right? Carbon sits in the atmosphere for 100 years, methane even more powerful green of a greenhouse gas um, and really started to look through the, 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 you know, helping with the launch of drawdown um, started to understand the power nature based solutions are, are going to play and th that they are by far the most immediate solution we have. And they have all these lovely co benefits like clean water and clean air and biodiversity and, you know, habitat and things like that, that of course are really important as well um, as well as the climate. So, um, became very passionate about that space, was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do in that space, um, wanted to move over into it. Um, and then I started working with a um, impact investor that, that moved to the Tahoe area and basically just wanted to figure out how do, we, how do we take on a topic in the Tahoe area that could have global impact. And they were contemplating building like a Aspen Institute type center where you could bring people together around specific topics. So I, I essentially went on a listening tour um, in the area just to talk to anyone who would talk to me in the scientific community, um, all types of community leaders, leaders, mayors and county leads and folks like that. Um, talked to folks I worked with in the, in the climate science world as well, like Catherine Hayhoe and Michael Mann and some others. Um, to just really understand at the local level, but also broader global level, what could such a center take on that would be unique um, and uh, pretty climate focused family um, thinking about this. Uh, and I, of course, I, I, I was at the point in my career where I, I only wanted to work on climate solutions. So as I'm doing this work, uh, we had the Paradise Fire. Um, we then had the 2018 fire season, which was the worst anyone could imagine in, in the West uh, at the time. And that was all anyone would talk about. And so here I had grown over the previous couple of years, very passionate about uh, nature-based climate solutions. And now I'm seeing the Western US blow up in fire. And so I started to really dig into why is this happening? What is the actual intersection of climate change and land management history that is creating this, this mess? Um, and can we do something about it? Um, or is, is the future that California just really isn't going to have forests, um, which is what I was hearing. <laughs> so, um, that was what, that was the aha where, you know, then I started digging into, um, conversations with forest service, um, folks, um, BLM folks, um, folks at Cal fire, which is California's, um, you know, fire agency, um, other emergency response groups and scientists that were really working in the ecologies you know, space. And uh, that's where I realized that um, there is something we can do. We can actually go into these forests and 
and restore the structure that they used to have before European Americans essentially screwed them up. And I can get into that a little bit. Um, and they will make it through climate change. Um, and then they will help us make it through climate change. <laughs> so um, really saw, saw the need um, to, to um, unlock that solution. And it was, it's happening very slowly. So right now, um, you know, in California, the, the, the science is that if we, if we continue with the status quo, California is not going to have forests in the next couple of decades. And that, that's really hard to imagine with California's majestic trees. Um, but it's happening very quickly, right? Like it, we're losing like 6% per year and that's compounding. And the fire is becoming so severe that the forests are not growing back. Um, they're not able to recede. Mm. And so um, we have to accelerate the process of restoration that starts with fixing very slow conflict-ridden planning processes that can take 5, 10, 15 years to get multiple jurisdictions to agree on a plan that can go to permit. Um, and often those plans get litigated and then nothing happens. And so we've got a very broken planning process. Um, and that's a date that what I saw is that's a technology problem. Um, it's a data problem um, and it's a communication problem. And so um, that was the big aha of, of really needing to build a platform that solves those things, as well as monitoring and reporting so that we know what's working. Because at this point, things are changing so quickly, we have to be adaptive. So, um, and there's no, there's no understanding, there's no way to understand or get insights on what, what treatment mix are actually working and helping for us make it through severe fire and tree mortality from drought and those kinds of things that they're facing. Before we, we go too much into, uh, into detail of uh, Vibrant Planet, I'd like to take a, a little zoom out here uh, and go back a little bit on the uh, natural uh, based climate uh, solution uh, landscape uh, today. So maybe to, to start uh, and to put things back uh, into, uh, into perspective, uh, could you maybe share with, uh, with us uh, a definition uh, or your definition of like what is the natural uh, you know based climate solution um, what are they uh, because it's definitely something that uh, you know we hear that uh, uh, more like a, sometimes as a buzzword but uh, what is really uh, you know a natural based solution sure uh, so really nature-based solutions are um, nature nature pulls carbon down with, with or without us <laughs> so vegetation obviously through through photosynthesis whether that's a um you know plant in a in a in ag lands or whether it's a tree they're they're pulling carbon out of the sky to feed themselves right they're they produce they, through photosynthesis produce sugars that 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 they're feeding themselves with and so they're very powerful drawdown machines um that exist today um that carbon gets stored in soil so the 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 plant above ground is is eating the carbon and then it's storing it um, through its root systems into the soil. And so we have these massive, massive um, carbon sinks, both in the vegetation and then in the soil underneath. And you can imagine tree roots, especially in dry forests, go they have to go very, very deep into the ground to tap water. And so often in fire prone forests where we're focused, um, more than half the tree is under the under the ground. You can't see it. Um, and so there's these deep, deep um, repositories of carbon. Um, other nature-based solutions include oceans. The ocean is is 
pulling down vast amounts of carbon for us. Um, and so the nature-based solution space is really focused on restoring damaged lands um, and coastlines, um, and then and then ideally um, taking ecologically sound, scientifically sound um, science, uh, sorry, options. Um, let, let me say that over. So um, basically using the best science we have available to actively implement um, solutions. So for example, in oceans, where can we plant more kelp beds? Um, and you know we can we can do oyster farming and other other um, uh, other nature-based solutions that are both um, helping with the resilience of coastlines. So oyster beds can help when waves get big; they can be a barrier for impacts. Right? It's an ad adaptation, and the kelp is pulling carbon down. Um, and so that that's an example of an ocean-based nature-based solution um, where you're actively planting kelp, but you want to do that only where kelp would naturally grow. And ideally we're restoring where it used to be and, and where it's no longer growing for some ecological kind of damage that that's happened in land. Um, so on, on, in forests where we're focused right now, um, the, the story, especially in Western forests, but this is really a worldwide, worldwide problem. Um, the, the forest in the Western U S um, were basically self-managed um, for 20,000 years. So lightning would strike, and there was also a great deal of cultural fire. So, so native tribes were bringing almost every inch of the West. And so fire was rolling through this land, very, very low intensity fire, cleaning a forest floor, killing off baby trees so that the, the forest had, had the right trees per acre, um, sort of calling itself down. Um, and then, like I said, in, in, in fire-prone forests, um, this, this is how carbon cycles and how nutrient cycles, it's different than a tropical forest. And so in the Western US, but Europe before that, Australia, some of the other fire-prone lands, we, we played the Lorax out. We, we cut everything. There's only in the Western US, for example, there's only about four, five percent old growth left. Um, and that's hard to, for us to imagine. We, we, we can't, the forests that we see today look nothing like what European Americans arrived um, to. And so um, we, we disrupted the natural structure um, at that point about 150 years ago. We cut everything to basically build mines, railroads, and towns. Everything was built of wood. The whole American economy was built on the back of wood. And so that was sort of a reset button. We also removed um, indigenous peoples uh, and they were tending the forest with fire. And so that fire adaptivity um, you know, that the, the, the people were living in the ecosystems and burning was a big part of life. And so removing that, that good fire was a, was a big mistake. That was kind of mistake number two after, after cutting everything down. And then mistake number three was um, suppressing fire in lands that are starved for fire. And so we've been getting better and better at that. After World War II, we started to use warplanes to, to dump retardant and water on, on fire we put almost every fire out. You don't even hear about fires. We 98% of fires are extinguished within a few feet of run. We're so good at it. Um, but the, the, the detriment is, is these forests can't regenerate without it. They can't cycle carbon, they can't cycle nutrients. And so they're dying and they are also hazardously overfueled. And so now if a fire strikes, whether it's a campfire that gets out of control or a lightning strike, um, it now can grow 
go to a catastrophic fire. So we've got all these ladder fuels in these way overgrown forests. The fire gets picked up from the ground where it would have stayed and, and been a low intensity regenerative fire. And it goes up to the canopy and then we've got climate fueled winds and those, those winds are pushing fire at speeds we've never seen before. And so what's happening increasingly is this very high severity fire that kills the forest. It's, it doesn't regenerate it. it, it wipes it out. It sterilizes the this, this, this seeds um, and, and, and it wipes out all the ecosystem services. So water is at stake. We have landslides after big fires that have you know, tr trillions of dollars of impact annually dredging reservoirs with sediment because there's nothing to hold the soil. Um, the carbon sinks are getting wiped out. Um, they're releasing massive amounts of carbon during the fire as well. And then we lose them permanently. So, and then we're losing hab habitat. So our spotted owl packs where I live are burning up, um, owl, you know, eagle nest, those kinds of things. So, and then, and then of course that wall of fire can hit a town and take out a town like the paradise example or the Caldor fire that came close to where I live um, wiped out several towns uh, before it came into the basin. So, um, so we, we've, we've got to basically restore the ability for these forests to handle fire. Um, by restoring them, they can also, um, we're, we're maintaining habitat. We're keeping those roots in place to, for, for, to keep sediment from, happen, from going into reservoirs and streams. Um, and, and then we're also keeping those carbon sinks intact. And so that's um, in terms of nature-based solution, our work is to basically restore forest structure so that it's in sort of a natural range of variability, we call it, but also will last in a future range of variability. Like how do we make sure these forests are, 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 are uh, going to make it through higher temperatures and, um, and, uh, and lower precipitation, which is a reality. So in terms of um, nature-based solution, and I would say like the, the, the potential of like um, capturing uh, and storing greenhouse gas and you know, therefore like uh, here on this case CO2, what are, according to you, like which are the, 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 the one, the most promising uh, or most efficient one, or is it really based on uh, each like area and uh, sector and geography in the world that each one is like more the uh, optimum uh, way of, uh, of working? Uh, or do you see like one or two, uh, you know, uh, area where we should maybe invest more effort? Like, I mean, you mentioned uh, here, um, forest and you know especially after after wildfire um do you see any uh others like you mentioned kelps like do you see any others where really like uh you know we should put probably more like time effort and, and resource to accelerate uh, uh the restoring of those lands and therefore like develop and like uh, the deployment of those uh, nature-based solution yeah so we've talked about forests restoring um you know, dry forests, fire fund forests is crucial. Um, the the tropical forest problem is is a different picture. Um, tropical forests don't need active management. We just need to leave them alone. And so, in places like the Amazon or the DRC, uh, we we need to figure out ways. And we have been struggling with this for decades now. How do we incentivize farmers? to keep forests intact? And how do we stop illegal logging? 
Um, and so it, it, if we leave the if we leave the Amazon alone, it's just fine. <laughs> but we're reaching a tipping point with with the Amazon, especially where um, if it the, the science tells us that if if it if we lose more than 80% of its historic forest cover, um, it will tip into a mass dieback where most of the forest will very rapidly die off and become dry um, and fire prone in a place where there isn't supposed to be fire. And so we are at 81% of, of historic forest cover in the Amazon. We have 1% to go and um, we need to race against time to to figure out the solution. So there's lots of people working on that problem to try to incentivize farmers to keep at least 80% of their land forested um, and pay them for that, for that service through carbon credits mostly. Um, and then, uh, so, so that's sort of the, the, the range of the forest problem. Our world is restoring fire-prone forests to safeguard carbon and other ecosystem services. Tropical forests, we just need to incentivize protection and, and leaving it intact. Um, the boreal is is sort of a mix. Um, the parts of the boreal, parts of Alaska, for example, are becoming fire prone, where we may have to do some thinning and management um, where we we haven't had to do that before. And then and then similar to the Amazon, there are other places in Alaska, for example, or other parts of the boreal we just need to protect and leave intact. Um, the other the other really vast carbon sink on Earth are peatlands. Um, and meadows, like even where I live in the Sierra Nevada, the, the meadows in the Sierra Nevada store as much carbon than Indonesian peatlands, but we continuously drain them and build on them. Um, we're putting highways on them, we put neighborhoods on them. And so we have to change um, where we develop and we have to understand the trade-offs of development um, from a much broader perspective than, than the way we, we make decisions today. Um, and then the other really promising solution is regenerative ag. And so this is where we really need to move from extractive agriculture and lots and lots of fertilizers and additives and move to a, a regenerative system that includes things like cover crops, um, compost, biochar. As there's a kind of forest connection with biochar. We can produce lots of biochar that can land in, in ag lands and be a sponge um, for in both drought and flooding, it's, it's this wonderful spongy um, uh, 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 nutrient add, basically. Um, so, soil, if we can, um, if we can restore soil, we're losing our topsoil. Um, in fact, in most places in the world, we only have about 60 harvests left because of the extractive um, agriculture that we have we have been practicing. And so, if we can restore soil. By all of these additives, you know, like like compost, biochar, and cover crops, and we can bring animals and the nutrients from animals um, into soils. We can restore them, and they're vast carbon sinks. I mean, I, I heard a statistic once that if we were to restore the grasslands in the Midwest of the United States, it would pull all the carbon down that that humans emit every year, like just that area of the U.S. So. Um, the, the those grasslands and perennial grasses are like trees where they have these very very deep like five six foot root systems so they're pulling carbon way down into the ground so all of those solutions excite me um and we need to move as fast as humanly possible to to um to accelerate them do, 
Do you have any, uh, out of curiosity, any data uh, in terms of like what is the um, ad capacity when all of those land are restored and uh, really this uh, nature-based solution, you know, uh, carbon sink, uh, you know, the, all the different panels of, and, and solutions that is ex existing out there are really like uh, fully working in the ideal world. What would be like the uh, capacity to really capture this, uh, this carbon in terms of like compared to what we emit, uh, emit today? Well, so forests globally, when they're healthy, pull down about 30% of the carbon human humans emit um grasslands are similar i think the statistics vary there but you know if we just restored gra grasslands and um and forests we've we've dealt with 60 percent of the problem um and then you think about some of the ocean solutions like kelp beds like i mentioned um and uh you know i think i, I i'm not sure what the percentage is that they pull down but they're they're very powerful um, and then, you know, strategies to keep some of these peatlands and, um, you know, the wetland areas intact, um, the avoided emissions of, of keeping those intact, you know, all together, um, there's about, so, so one of the, one of the, um, books I was going to recommend is, is Drawdown. And, and if you read Project Drawdown, um, and they're, they're constantly, um, you know, coming up with new solutions or studying new solutions and publishing about them. There are 16 nature-based solutions, land-based solutions to pull carbon down and methane, all the other greenhouse gases. They, in combination, blow away anything we can do in, in, in energy. Um, and so um, they, can, they can solve the problem alone of course we have to do all of it right we need to we need to get off of fossil fuels um women and girls um empowerment is another one of the solutions in drawdown um so you know population controls all of those things we at this point we have to we have to do it all um but that was one of the things that was really remarkable to me just learning through through the process of working with paul and and reading drawdown how powerful the the land-based solutions are and they're, they're they're at our fingertips they're right here and like i said before we get other benefits out of them like biodiversity which we forget we're, we're dependent on having other species in the world um we get clean water we get clean air if we're avoiding you know catastrophic fire and the the horrifically toxic smoke that comes from that right um there's lots of other reasons to to pursue nature-based solutions so uh, just a quick question uh, to almost close this uh, this chapter of the uh, of the interview uh, i'd like to understand maybe um, you know this the deployment of those uh, of those solution or adoption i would say like um, what are the, the regulation uh, currently in place that are like in a way uh, helping to support uh, these those uh, carbon solution and, and maybe what are the, the missing one? I mean, what is, what, what is blocking or slowing down uh, to allow really like the natural based solution uh, to go to go mainstream, according to you? So it depends on the context. Um, I think that the the carbon credit, um, like forest carbon credits, as an example, but you can say the same in in ag. Um, there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of shenanigans happening, um, and a lot of that is a data problem 
and you know creating the kinds of transparency that we need to understand uh, the the benefit of keeping a part of the Amazon intact. What what how do you value that? How do you make sure that you don't pay for something that then gets cut down the next year? Um, so there's there's in the Amazon context, there's a lot of social, political, and global economic forces that are are eroding trust and credibility. Um, and so you can, you know, what we can do now with with remote sensing and data, we can see the tree level. We we build really high resolution data in our system where we we get sub one meter resolution and we can see trees in three dimensions and understand a bunch of forest functions from that at the tree level. We can do the same. We're getting there with the Amazon. The canopy is so thick. It's it's hard. It's a harder problem in in that tropical context. But we're getting the kind of data development and AI and machine learning to see forests at the tree level and understand really clear quantification of things like carbon value, but also biodiversity, water values. Um, so that part of the equation that has been a barrier until that technology had matured enough the last few years, that was one barrier that we can kind of check the box. Like we've got that now. So we can bring that level of visibility that brings some trust the now we have to deal with the kind of social and political issues and that that's true in different contexts again in the amazon we've got this global demand for beef that is causing us you know soy feed for for cattle worldwide and cattle grazing in a place that that's a completely inappropriate crop to grow and so we're clear cutting forests to grow soy to feed cows for americans and europeans that want to eat beef and unfortunately it's industrialized beef there are ways to grow cattle um with, that is actually a nature-based solution when you've got cattle working in a regenerative system but the way we're doing it with industrialized ag is is obliterating the rainforest and so that's a big global social economic problem that we have to work internationally to solve um, Barriers in the Western US and the wildfire problem where we've started our work is really just, you know, people having a hard time with behavior change. We have to change the way we manage land. Um, and federal government is by far the largest landowner in the Western US, ranges from 40 to 60% of land ownership. Um, and the Forest Service is doing everything it, it can, and we work really closely with, with a lot of forest supervisors and, and even up to the chief um, to, to really rethink how we plan, how we collaborate across jurisdictions, including tribal lands, um, as well as state and private, private forestry. How do you collaborate well across groups and build trust of NGOs that often use litigation to stop action? Um, because they're concerned about water quality, they're concerned about habitat getting cut down, they're concerned about a slippery slope to big logging, which we do have a history of. And so again, we've, we've, we've got the data and the machine learning and AI to tick the box of transparency. And that's part of what we're bringing to the table is we can show you what's happening down to the tree level and help you plan and help bring those NGOs into the fold so that they don't litigate, so that they're part of the process and they can trust that the action is the right ecological action for that area. So that's really important. Um, and you know, and then it's just policy change too. We've got, there's, there's, um, there's needs for mandates for reporting on 
treatment effectiveness and resilience trends and things like that, that the, the policy landscape has not caught up yet to the need to move very, very quickly before we lose everything. So we're trying to help accelerate some of that using data and storytelling and visualization, um, doing what we can, but it's, it's really hard. People are, people are not good at change. That's definitely like change management is always uh, always a, a tricky a tricky one. So let's go a, a bit deeper now into uh, vibrant planet. Um, I mean, you already uncover uh, quite a bit of the of the story. Uh, this uh, maybe I'd like to hear a bit more about like this you know uh, gap, the initial gap that you identified uh, in terms of like uh, you know data and what was like missing for the local uh, authorities, and especially like you're mentioning. Uh, here in Tao, uh, in terms of like you know forest management and like how to uh, uh, to go further. So, can you tell us maybe a bit more about this initial story uh, of the of the company? I mean, why did uh, Vibrant uh, Planet uh, have to exist? Yeah. So, in um, in Western forests and fire prone forests worldwide. So you can think about Mediterranean Europe. Um, France had one of its largest fires, right, this year. Um, Greece recently burned. Um, Spain has a fire problem. Australia obviously has a huge fire problem. So in all of these areas, um, you know, again, what I was seeing is this very conflict-ridden, very slow planning process. And so fires are moving at, you know, 60,000 acres, 100,000 acres, 2 million acres now because of that catastrophic fire problem I mentioned where we've got this fuel load, these very unhealthy overgrown forests. And so these fires are moving at these really large scales now that requires um, landowners to come together because it's crossing federal, state and private lands and tribal lands. And so it's forcing collaboration, but the, the, there's no tool for collaboration and so that was that was the big thing I saw is how do we help people communicate better and bring that transparency to a planning process to avoid litigation, um, be more inclusive in the process across jurisdictions, but also stakeholders that are they're that concerned about things like like owl habitat um, so that they're part of the process. Um, and so what I saw from a data perspective um, was basically a bunch of data silos and very low quality data. So the data to date, so we, we think we have really good data because you can zoom in on Google Earth, right? And you think you're seeing trees, but you're, it, it's two dimensional data. Um, the fire problem is so vast now. So in the Western US, for example, we have 240 million acres um, across the Western states that are at risk of high severity fire. Um, you can't walk 240 million acres and and look at the forest, which is what's happening today. Like that's the that's the process. Is you're you're physically out there, you're working with paper maps, um, and tools like ArcGIS, ArcGIS, which are great. You can pull you can pull data layers into that 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 tool, but then usually the output is a printed map and a bunch of people around a table drawing on it and arguing. Um, and so, what what what's needed now is prioritization. And we have to do prioritization using remote sense data because we have to figure out where do we actually have some of these in-person processes? Where do we put boots on the ground? Where can we get the most bang for our buck um, if we have limited dollars to spend to restore a landscape that's a million acres, let's say, um, where do we go? 
to make sure we're getting the most benefit and groups like the forest service and and um you know federal parks and state parks they're always managing to avoid wildfire burning from their forest into a town so they're trying to avoid losses to communities but they're also always managing for carbon water biodiversity recreation right that's where we play is in for forest, forest service and blm land um, and so they have to have a multi-benefit planning process that requires really robust data to understand at the tree level forest function and how and then to be able to model different treatment scenarios. Where do we put prescribed fire? Where do we mechanically thin a forest that's overgrown? Um, so we have to apply treatment mixes and then and then apply fire probabilities and climate probabilities to understand how would this treatment work over time and so our our system was built to basically solve that problem where we've, we we create very high resolution three-dimensional tree data at one meter to five meter level depending on what what we can pull in and then we normalize water biodiversity carbon recreation population and building infrastructure data to that tree approximate object that's all packaged in a scenario building platforms so that you can play with a whole bunch of different treatment scenarios, model them into the future and understand how effective they would be in fire probabilities, in climate probabilities, flooding probabilities, um, drought driven disease, um, you know, other climate driven problems. So, um, and you can imagine today in a paper driven process where you have maybe one plan <laughs> Um, that you can't play with, you're not seeing data visualizations, um, you're not in an environment where you can imagine, right? Um, where you might have a do nothing scenario where in California, everything burns in 10 years, or you're, you maybe have one or two alternative plans in a very opaque process um, by an agency that is not trusted by an, by an NGO that's really worried about habitat. Um, and so of course they're gonna sue and stop it. <laughs> So we're basically solving multiple things at once. So it's the, the data transparency, robust data and data visualizations, um, the ability to create scenarios together and share them and compare them. And you can literally overlap to see where you have consensus. And then once treatment happens, monitoring. Um, so we can see if there was a fire, you can monitor you know, the fire effects. As treatments are happening, are we actually achieving the objectives that we were shooting for? And then overall, how our landscapes trending um, and what is the value of that in terms of avoided losses to all those ecosystem services that could potentially burn as well as towns that could burn but also um, uh, you know you can think you can think about insurance and utility you know those, those kinds of issues so so that that was the big need that that we saw and that we solved one of my first co-founding partners was at the remote sensing lab for the forest service pulling in, you know, hyperspectral LIDAR data and satellite data and trying to hack at this. And he was having the realization that he, this was not possible inside government. And so part of why we founded the company is, how, you know, how can we partner with forest service scientists and labs who are doing awesome work and have awesome models, um, but bring Silicon Valley level engineering to build really, really robust data sets. So getting that tree approximate object data has required the combination of remote sensing experts like my partner, Scott, and amazing scientists like our chief scientist, Hugh Safford, 
working really closely with some of the top machine learning engineers in the world to crack the kind of data that we need to actually drive drive the information in the system. So that that was you know the other ahas we we've got to bring these these worlds together basically of science, forest management and tech. So in terms of that um, you know I, I clearly grasped the, the the I mean the the uh, the large and, and big and ambitious uh, mission that you guys are on. And I think uh, uh, there's like so many different pieces. I'm, uh, on one side, I'd like to learn a little bit more about like, how do you capture those data and you just like uncover a little bit, but like, uh, I mean, you're able to have like data at the three level. So are you guys now focused on one area uh, in uh, in the US or are you guys available uh, everywhere or at least in the entire uh, US uh, uh, for now, uh, how far are you in that uh, in that process of like uh, growing and achieving this uh, this larger vision that uh, you guys have? Yeah, so we've invested heavily in um, in cracking this workflow um, to build these tree approximate objects because um, that is the foundation. And the way we do that is we we pull in publicly available hyperspectral hyper lidar. So it's a specific type of lidar. Lidar is flown today by planes. Um, more and more, I think we'll be able to use drones. Um, but um, those are these are flights that are commissioned by the feds or states like California, or Oregon, Washington. Um, and so we have LIDAR in a lot of different places. It's, it's often spotty and it's a picture in time. So it, it's quickly outdated, especially now, right, yeah. with fires and drought driven disease. But um, what we're able to do is pull in anything that's that's out there and often often these flights happen and that data is just sitting there and people don't know what to do with it so so much of, of the data problem is how do you turn data into useful information so that's really what we're doing so we're pulling in these publicly available data sets um we train our algorithm on lidar so lidar is like a laser where it's yeah. seeing a forest down to the needle or the leaf all the topography there's a whole bunch of aspects that you can that you can derive from lidar and get that three-dimensional view of a, of a forest very very accurately we then um are able to refurbish lidar that's out of date like the mosquito fire that happened this year while the fire was happening we were refurbishing lidar that we had to look at how how severe the fire burned and what the what the effects of that might be on that fire um that was another fire kind of near the lake tahoe area this year um, and so we're able we're able to to do that. Um, and then where lidar was never flown, where there's a complete gap, we're able to basically approximate tree approximate objects for that area. Um, and and we're able to get to like sub five meter resolution right now. That'll continue to get better as our inputs get better and our algorithm gets smarter. Um, but that, that's good enough for planning purposes. So we in invested heavily so that we now have the capability to point that machine anywhere in, in the world. Um, and it's very tuned for fire prone forest types. So the ones I mentioned in the Western US, in the um, in Mediterranean Europe, Australia, the, those forest types, but we can tune it for the Amazon, for the DRC. So we, we, can, we can apply it in, in other, other ecosystem types as well. We're now also extending that to, to grazing lands where we can restore grasslands as well that are adjacent to, to forests. Um, so that that was the big the big feat um, was was building that that capability. 
So in terms of uh, reporting that uh, you provide and, and, and different pathways of solution for the, uh, for the different uh, local you know, uh, stakeholders and, and authorities and uh, land manager, uh, where are you at today? Uh, what kind of reporting? What are you able to, uh, to give them? And, and in a way, how do they, um, you know, what was their initial reaction and, uh, you know, seeing those people coming out of Silicon Valley, as you, as you mentioned, uh, with those reports and data and maybe some recipe for them to, to act on uh, A, B, or C. I mean, what was their initial uh, reaction? Yeah, so today the system is deployed and, and at work um, in the central Sierra in about 1.5 million acres. Um, and then it's within the next six months will be deployed in about 10 million acres and um, more of Northern California, Southern Oregon. Um, and then we're starting to now move into some additional um, areas in Idaho and Colorado. Um, and um, the, the reaction has been interesting. So there are, there, there's a, a, there are some folks that um, are a little threatened by it. Um, the, though the team that, that we've brought in from the Forest Service and BLM and some of the agencies at EPA as well, um, are, are, we've got some really beloved, um, very credible scientists and, and land managers. And so, um, you know, though there's some skepticism of Silicon Valley, you know, folks coming in like myself and our CTO and our chief product officer, Neil Hunt built Netflix. Um, and, uh, and so I think they're a little wary of, of that, you know, Silicon Valley often says, we're going to save the day. And, and then it's, you know, like an <laughs> elephant squashing things. Um, so I think, I think there's sort of tepid excitement, I guess, is what I would say that this could, this, you know, we've, we've gone through a very deep co-design, um, body of work, um, working with, you know, dozens and dozens of land managers and scientists across the, the land management world, especially forest service folks and also emergency response teams to inform the design of the system and then to continue to iterate it. And so I think now that we've got our first deployment out and people are seeing it at work, it's snowballing and, and people are trusting it. They're realizing the data is high quality. They're realizing that it really does improve and speed up the collaborative planning process. Um, and they're excited to be able to monitor and report back to whoever's providing funding, whether it's the feds or local community foundation or whoever, um, the use of funds, you know, and, and, and their effectiveness, resilience trends, those kinds of things. So the value proposition is working. And now that we've kind of got it live and out there, it's, it really is snowballing and um, more and more landscapes are, are coming on board. So do, do you have uh, any uh, paid clients so far? I mean, who, who is your, uh, your your customers? I mean, who's paying you? I mean, what's the business model behind uh, Vibrant Planet? Yeah, so we sell the system as, it's basically analytics as a service. And um, the people that use it are forest supervisors um, for the U.S. Forest Service at the local level. Um, their fuels management teams, their botanists. So they've got a bunch of different, you know, hydrologists, a bunch of different scientific um, teams underneath the forest supervisor that runs that forest. So like the Tahoe National Forest is around a million acres. Um, we've we've combined that with the Tahoe Basin Forest, which is a separate forest that's around Lake Tahoe. So that now we're crossing three connected watersheds, three different forests, um, and their teams, um, two utilities. 
um, PG&E is, is now a customer as well. Um, and they're part of that landscape as well as Nevada Energy on the Nevada side. And um, uh, so, yes, yeah, so it's, it's basically the, the customer is, the paying customer are fire districts who have to do community wildfire protection plan updates every couple of years. There's a vast amount of, of um, federal funding that moves to the municipal level for that. So we have several fire districts in that landscape. We have several forest supervisors that are paying in through, through, through NGO partners typically. Um, and then um, we also work with um, resource conservation districts, which are really interesting groups that were set up by the USDA long time ago, mostly in the ag space, but they're very much playing ring, ring leader and purse holder in forest management um, now and, and really um, helping jurisdictions and NGOs come to a table to, to work together for exactly this problem. That's, that's a new thing that's started to happen the last couple of years. So we have two different contracts, for example, with, with resource conservation districts. Um, sometimes um, NGOs will form. So our work in Southern Oregon is with a group called SOFRIC, um, Southern Oregon Forest Restoration Collaborative. And so that's an NGO that has um, purchased our analytics as a service for the forest, forest service that is up there, the Rogue Siskiyou um, system, as well as NGOs and um, tribal partners and others that are in the area. So that's where we're selling now at the local landscape by landscape level. And then we hope at some point we can work with the federal government. Um, we are in conversations about ways we can support the USDA, the USDA um, writ large and Department of Interior, which is which is Bureau of Land Management, Federal Parks, um, some of the others too. So you can imagine eventually having more of an aggregated view, like for the mm -hmm. Forest Service chief of how are all my crisis landscapes doing? Are the treatments that we're moving billions of dollars to effective? Um, you know, he, he needs to report to Congress on, on what he's doing and how it's going. And so we really hope that we can over time support that. Mm -hmm. and, and in the meantime, we're basically helping at that ground level where, where permit happens, you know, for where, where trees are cut and where we do prescribed fire and some of the restorative treatments. So any uh, any competitors or indirect, direct, uh, who are doing the, the same job as you and uh, or maybe are you guys better? Well, really, the competition is um, the status quo and the status quo are these consultant driven processes where environmental consultants will get hired to run these five, 10, 15 year paper based collaborative processes. Um, or in internal um, labs for the USDA, for example, um, can act as internal consultants. So they, so you know, a fire expert inside the Forest Service can work with the state of California and say, "Here are all of your vulnerable communities." Um, what they can't do is take it to like, "What do you do about it? <laughs> what are what are the strategies that you design to to um, mitigate this risk?" And they, you know, they can't help with how do you collaborate effectively with other landowners, private, state, federal, you know, tribe, tribal lands that need to actually agree on what you do, what actions you take at that local level um, to get consensus so you can get the permit to do the work. So I think again, like the the like we talked about before, I think the, the behavior change is hard. People are used to doing things the same way. There is wide recognition that the status quo, we're going to lose everything. And so I think there's this, there's this clear need for a system like ours. There's, there's nerve, there's a, there, people know about us. Um, the more, um, 
pioneering uh, folks inside agencies like the Forest Service or NGOs are 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 saying, yeah, bring it, <laughs> bring it on. I want this thing. And others are kind of waiting and seeing, you know, is this, is, is this, does this thing work? Is this is this the system? Um, so anyway, hopefully that, that answers. We're, get, we're getting there. So what's uh, what's next for Vibrant Planet and maybe what, what, what keeps you uh, up at night? Um, time. We're just, we're so out of time um, from the broader climate perspective. Um, it's, it's, it's so difficult to see that this behavior change problem. And I just want, I want to help overnight. And it's like, you can't, you have to go through these processes to build trust and credibility. And um, it can be maddening because it's like, oh my God, we let's do something. Even if it's not perfect, let's do something before before my daughter can't go hike and backpack in the and ski in the forest that I love so much. Um, so that that's that's really the big thing is just what how do we do this faster? Like how do we get people on board with behavior change? How do we align incentives? How do we educate people on our actions and and how we're all responsible for what's happening? Right you know, from the history of clear cutting. The entire Western U.S. and removing tribes and not allowing tribes to manage land the way they they know how to how to how to manage it. Um, to you know, every time we eat beef in a restaurant that's industrial, we are we are directly cutting down the Amazon. And I don't think people understand that. So those are the things that um, I think about a lot and uh, trying to help create that sort of collective responsibility and and knowledge and excitement that we know what to do. We just need to do it faster. So my last question is a question that I always ask to uh, everyone on the on the show. I mean, what's your personal opinion of like on the climate crisis? I mean, what would be your words uh, to the people who feel demoralized and by all the already visible consequences? I mean, are we doomed? <laughs> Depends on the day how I answer that question. Um, luckily, you know, spending my life in the solution space i i am mostly hopeful um you know there there are so many things we can do i mean just in the nature-based solution space um and it's really exciting to see i mean obviously the market has had this enormous correction and funding's tough and all those things but i am seeing funding for our company for the for the nature-based solution space and for climate solutions as a whole it's it's still pretty steady and strong and so and there's so many cool startups popping up um, to solve different parts of the problem so I, i'm hopeful and i would encourage listeners to jump in it's it's all hands on deck and there is a lot of uh there's a lot of opportunity to have a lot of impact um and and also make a living while you're doing it. So, so how can uh, our listeners, like investors, founders, experts, uh, can help you guys? Um, well, keep an eye on our website because we'll we'll be doing some hiring soon. So, if people are interested in um, in in our company and platform, we'd love to talk to you. Um, and uh yeah and then funding of course um will continue to raise money and so if, if folks are interested in that they can they can reach out to me as well um 
and partnership, um, you know, where there we, we are much more collaborative than we are competitive. And so where there are folks working on similar or synergistic um, plays, uh, we are all ears to figure out where we can lock arms to do more together faster. So I'll say those are the three areas. Fantastic. So any question I should have asked you for this uh, first part of the interview that I did not have? Um, I don't think so. That's pretty thorough. Thank you so much, Alison, for uh, your time, for uh, your incredible insight on the, uh, on the industry. I'm so excited again to, to see uh, so many brilliant uh, people like you taking, uh, you know, putting so much time and effort into uh, finding uh, a durable solution for our planet and fighting uh, climate change. So thank you so much. Thank you. And so, so appreciate you, you giving us a little bit of spotlight. Um, <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org, where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends and see you next time.